The second reading this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 13. I will read verses 18 through 38. Hear the word of God. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Jesus, uh, because Judas had the money bag... Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Eternal God, amid all of the changing words of our times, speak your eternal word to us today so that we might taste what is sweeter than honey, so that we might glimpse timeless truth This we pray in the name of Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. Judas and Peter, 
Peter and Judas. These disciples of Jesus are Siamese twins in our reading this morning. Peter and Judas, Judas and Peter, two followers of Jesus who have the gall, the nerve, the gumption, the chutzpah, the audacity to try to hijack Jesus for their own purpose. We tend to have a very different reaction to Peter and Judas, to Judas and Peter. Of course, both are world historical figures, both are bigger than life, and through the centuries lots of ink has been spilled thinking and talking about Judas and Peter. Judas, the very name means treachery and betrayal, Judas, the worst of all sinners. In the Divine Comedy, the medieval poet Dante consigns Judas to the nastiest bit of hell, to its innermost ring the final, deepest part of perdition, the ninth circle. It's a region reserved for those guilty of treachery and betrayal, those who commit crimes not against enemies, not against random unknown people, but who sin against and injure the very people who love them most, the very people they owed the greatest allegiance and loyalty There, in the ninth ring of hell, Dante imagines sinners like Cain and Brutus and Judas, not in flames of fire, but in a frozen lake of ice, fully conscious, fully alert, but unable to move from their twisted, contorted positions, unable to speak or to even cry hot tears of regret and remorse. In the very depths of the ninth circle of hell, Dante places Judas. Judas was one of the twelve disciples. He was a man who knew Jesus in ways that we could only wish. A student and a follower of the Master for three years. On the night of the Last Supper, Jesus washed the feet of Judas. Judas, the very personification of human evil. And then there is Peter, St. Peter, author of two of the letters in the New Testament, the first bishop of Rome, the apostle who lends his name to the basilica, which is the epicenter of the faith of 1.2 billion Roman Catholics. Peter who preached The very first Christian sermon on the day of Pentecost. Peter, whose boldness and earthy humanity inspire those of us who love Jesus but are still a little rough around the edges. Peter was crucified upside down because he considered himself unworthy to be crucified the way Jesus was crucified. Peter, the very personification of Christian saintliness. Judas and Peter, Peter and Judas, these disciples of Jesus are actually Siamese twins in our reading this morning. Judas the betrayer, Peter the denier. What a duo. Peter the denier, Judas the betrayer with friends like these. And what these two benighted, misdirected disciples share in common is a desire to hijack Jesus, to use Jesus to promote their own agenda. 
What these two benighted, misdirected disciples share in common is a failure to let Jesus be Jesus. This morning we're going to dig into this sad text to hear what it has to say. We'll learn a little bit about Judas and Peter. But mostly I want to talk about us. I want to talk about our disposition to hijack Jesus. To use Jesus to promote our own agendas. And then I want to talk about the antidote that Jesus offers. The antidote to betrayal. The antidote to denial. It's called love. And it is the new commandment that Jesus gives his disciples on the eve of his own death. So let's begin by talking about hijacking Jesus. At the time of Jesus, all Jews were looking for the Messiah. Jews of every stripe and every party hoped for the great man of God, a descendant of David, who would restore the glory of the ancient United Kingdom of Israel and Judah, who would expel the foreign armies, who would reestablish the house of David as the ruling family who would usher in an era of peace and prosperity and righteousness. According to Josephus, the Jewish historian writing in the first century of the Christian era, the Jewish people could be divided into four groups. Two of these groups you know well from the New Testament, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. They were very strict in their observance of the law, and they flatly rejected any mixing between Jews and Gentiles. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They tended to be upper class, they were politically connected, and they were comfortable accommodating themselves to the surrounding Hellenic Roman culture. The other two groups of Jews are less well-known the Essenes and the Zealots. We know about the Essenes because of the Dead Sea Scrolls, a group of ancient manuscripts that were saved in clay jars by the Essene community at Qumran and were rediscovered in the 1940s. These people lived somewhat like monks in the wilderness, in communal compounds cut off from the outside world. They observed the law carefully and many of them were celibate. The fourth group... The zealots were not only religious, but they were also political. And they were intensely patriotic. They were known for being violent, ready to take up arms against anyone that they perceived to be a threat to the Jewish nation. They were the, by any means necessary, defenders of the Jewish people. Many scholars, including our own Stephen Joss, believe that Judas Iscariot was a zealot. And there are a couple of theories connecting Judas's ideology as a zealot with his betrayal of Jesus. One theory is that Judas believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah and that he, like all the other Jews of his time, believed that this Messiah would be a military and a political leader of a this-worldly kingdom as opposed to a spiritual leader of some otherworldly kingdom. The theory then posits that Judas betrayed Jesus to the authorities to precipitate a crisis and to force the Messiah into open warfare. By betraying Jesus to the authorities, Judas thought that he was lighting a fire under the messianic powder keg. 
That's theory number one. That's the one that I like. Another theory is that Judas initially believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah, but that he became disillusioned and disappointed with Jesus when it became clear that Jesus had no political aspirations. As Jesus says in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world, but Judas wanted a this worldly kingdom. And when Jesus didn't deliver, Judas betrayed him. Those are two common theories to explain why Judas the zealot would betray Jesus. Take your pick. Both theories point to Judas betraying Jesus because Jesus was not who Judas wanted him to be. And then there's Peter. While Judas might have betrayed Jesus for grand and patriotic reasons... Peter seems to have denied Jesus for more personal reasons. You all remember the story of Peter's denial of Jesus on the night before the crucifixion. We'll read it when we finally get to John chapter 18. Jesus is in court being tried for his life and Peter is outside when three times he's spotted by people who think that he's connected with Jesus. First a servant girl, then a group of soldiers, and then finally one of the servants of the high priest. And every time they ask him, aren't you one of... The disciples of Jesus, and Peter says, no, I'm not. Distancing himself from the man who would soon die for him. How do we explain Peter's behavior? My guess is that he was seized simply by an instinct for self-preservation. Peter had openly followed Jesus while Jesus was filled with power and wonders. But now that Jesus stands to lose his life, Peter backs away. As long as Jesus has something to give Peter, as long as Jesus' prospects for future glory look good, Peter was on board. But when things turned dark, when it seemed that Jesus no longer had anything but danger to offer Peter, then Peter bolts. Yeah, Jesus, it's been fun for a while, but it's no longer working for me. No hard feelings, but I've got to do what's right for me. Keep in mind that Peter had seen Jesus heal many people. Keep in mind that Peter had seen Jesus feed 5,000 people with a few fish and loaves. He had seen Jesus calm a storm and walk on top of water. He had seen Jesus raise a dead man to life. He had seen Jesus transfigured with his glorified body um, there beside Elijah and Moses. Remember that Peter was the first person to say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But still, Peter turns his back on Jesus because associating with Jesus no longer has any advantages. Because Jesus wasn't who Peter thought he would be. Judas and Peter Betray and deny Jesus when Jesus doesn't deliver what they want. When Jesus isn't the person they wanted him to be. So how about us? Are we willing to let Jesus be Jesus? Or would we turn our backs on him if it turns out that Jesus is promoting a different agenda than the one that we are after? Now, 
allow me, without freaking out, to speak the nearly unspeakable at the risk of blasphemy. I pray to God that no one has a heart attack while I'm doing this. We've got those little pads, though, out there to shock you back if you get in trouble. Jay knows how to run them. Suppose for a moment that Jesus preached that a big, beautiful wall to keep Muslims out is the correct interpretation of the commandment to welcome the stranger and to protect the alien in your land. If Jesus preached that, would you turn your back on him? Suppose for a moment that Jesus preached that on-demand abortion and euthanasia please the heart of God and honor the image of God impressed upon each human, and that these actions, in fact, fulfill the commandment to not kill. If Jesus preached that, would you turn your back on him? Would we turn our backs on Jesus if it turns out that Jesus is promoting a different agenda than the one that we want? Now, let me tell you the shocking truth. Jesus is promoting an agenda different from the one that you have. Jesus is promoting an agenda different from the one that I have. If we do not experience Jesus as a check, as a limitation to our view of the world, then we are either God ourselves, or we are deluded, or we simply have never encountered Jesus. This is actually a very important point, and I don't want you to tune out or think that this is too academic. If our religion doesn't in some way check us, or channel us, or limit us, or direct us, or change us, then our religion has nothing to do with God. The classical 19th century atheists like Feuerbach and Marx and Freud, they argued that God is in fact nothing more than a projection of human desire and human longing that we create God in our own image so that he looks like us, he sounds like us, he shares our politics and our values. On the classical atheist view, it is no wonder that God would vote the way that we vote. It's no wonder that paintings of Jesus would look like our culturally determined ideals of human beauty. I think, however, that Feuerbach, Marx, and Freud were dead wrong. I think there actually is a God who is outside of our brains, who is independent of our minds, who is beyond our culture, and I believe that that God has created us, and we have not created him. And if I'm right about this, then that means that God gets to be who he is, not who we want him to be. In the same way that the planet Saturn gets to be what it is, and it doesn't ask us our opinion or whether or not we think it should have rings. God says in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. If God is always agreeing with us, then we haven't found God. Jesus says the very same thing in a more practical way, a less theoretical way. In Luke 9.23, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Jesus is talking about our agendas and our vision of the world, about our goals and our imaginations of how things are. The stuff that we want to do, the stuff that we want to accomplish. That's what he means when he says that we need to deny ourselves, that we need to take up our cross. 
To Judas, he says, you need to deny your political aspirations. To Peter, he says, you need to deny your instincts for safety and comfort. If I keep doing the same stuff after I've met Jesus as I did before I met Jesus, then I haven't met Jesus. Because Jesus says that to follow him means that I have to deny myself, that I have to say no to myself. Now, as anyone who has ever tried to walk away from an open box of Oreo cookies knows denying ourselves is a hard thing to do. Scripture describes conversion as an upside-down, death-to-life change. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now this past week, God gave me a whole bunch of opportunities to die to myself. To deny myself. I trust that you know that I struggle with sin as much as you do. And pretty much every time the answer to the sin in my life is that I need to deny myself. I need to think about what someone else needs rather than what I need. I need to obey God and do what I know that I'm supposed to do rather than doing what I want to do in the moment. It's not really rocket science, this business of following Jesus. But it is contrary to everything our instincts tell us. It is also contrary to everything that our culture tells us. A culture which says that saying no to ourselves is downright bizarre. As followers of Jesus, we need to let Jesus be Jesus. And we need to take him as he presents himself and leave it at that. And we need to be careful that we don't only love him because we think he's promoting our agenda or because we think that he'll be a a handy tool to have in our toolbox. So let me close by talking about love. I finished reading C.S. Lewis's little book, The Four Loves, this week. Has anybody read The Four Loves? Strong recommendation. Okay, read it. It's not very long. It'll take you about uh, three hours to read that book. The Four Loves. I would recommend this book to all of you, particularly those of you who are in love with being in love. You know who you are. Lewis discusses four different kinds of love that the Bible mentions. Storge, which is the comfortable, empathetic love of familiar things. This is the kind of love that we have for old uh, slippers and familiar scenes. This is the fondness that we have for former teachers and, and distant relatives. Lewis thinks that about 90% of human happiness is connected with storge. Now beyond storge is philia, which is the bond of friendship. This kind of love, Lewis argues, is the least natural of the four. It's often based on shared interests and it dissolves when interests change. Eros, or erotic love, is the kind of love that the world talks about most. This is the love that makes the world go round. This is the love of romance, and it's largely rooted in our biology. Lewis counsels a bit of levity 
when it comes to arrows, that we would, shouldn't take it so seriously and recognize the fact that it often makes us look foolish. Not that they're bad, but it is important to recognize that there is a self-serving component in each of these first three loves, storge, philia, and eros. We love storge, comfortable things, because of how they make us feel. We love philia, friends, because of the interests that we share. We love eros, those that we are attracted to, because they bring us pleasure or answer a biological need. Nothing wrong with those loves. They each have their place. But their place must be in submission to a fourth kind of love, the love that we see in the Gospels, namely agape. Agape is self-giving, sacrificial love. Agape is not about me. It is about the other, about the beloved. When Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, he isn't saying... I want you to regard each other with storge, with warm, fuzzy feelings of affection. He isn't saying, I want you to have philia, to be nice friends who share hobbies and interests. And he certainly isn't saying, I want you to have arrows for each other and to be attracted and have sex with each other. Christ calls us to a rare kind of love. The one kind of love that reflects God's own nature and character, a love that sacrifices its own interest, that says no to itself on behalf of the other. And why is this kind of love so important? Because you can't be a Christian without it. When Jesus identifies the two great commandments of the law to be love God and love your neighbor, he means agape. He means self sacrificing love. We don't love God when we have sentimental feelings about him. We don't love our neighbors when we invite them over for sex. We love God when we listen to God and obey his commandments. And that will inevitably mean saying no to ourselves sometimes. We love our neighbors when we serve their needs and that will inevitably mean saying no to ourselves sometimes. Judas loved Storge, Philia, Jesus, as long as it seemed that Jesus was promoting the political agenda of of Judas. Just as long as Jesus was pulling in the same direction that Judas wanted to go. Judas had no agape for Jesus, no self-giving love for Jesus. His interest in Jesus reached only so far as what Jesus could do for him. Peter loved Storge, Philia, Jesus, as long as it seemed that being with Jesus made his life interesting and exciting without making it dangerous or sacrificial. Peter had no agape for Jesus, no self-giving love for Jesus, not yet at least. To have a loving relationship with Jesus requires that we let Jesus be who Jesus is, that we take him as he is. To have a loving relationship with Jesus requires that we be willing to say no To ourselves, sometimes. So here is my charge for us today. This week, I want us to think about whether or not we are actually saying no to ourselves for God's sake. I want us to notice the things that we do and say this week and to ask ourselves, have I done this because I want to do that or Because I have an instinct to do that? Or am I saying no to myself and doing that because I know that that's what God wants me to do? 
I think this could be a very interesting exercise for us. And if you want to get together next week and talk about this experience, I would love to meet with you and hear how things went. A new commandment Jesus gives to us that we love one another with self-sacrificing love, just as he has loved us the same way. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we honor you and we adore you, and we pray that the truths of your scripture would be sealed to our heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand now.